Psalm 83. While you're going there, I want to remind you guys one last time of the Prophecy Conference taking place this Friday and Saturday down at Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. Uh, It is going to be absolutely excellent. You do not want to miss this. It's mandatory for everybody in this church that you go down to this Prophecy Conference. Uh, It's free. The best teachers in Bible prophecy in the United States and beyond, actually, will be there. It's going to be incredible. They're obviously going to be addressing what's going on in Israel right now. And uh, this is not a time uh, to be amiss. This is a time to know what's going on, to be aware of what's happening. So I really encourage you to get down to that conference on Israel in the last days. I hope to see you guys there. I will be there for sure. Well, last week we started a message called, How the Christian Should View Israel. And that was part one last week. This week is part two, and it looks like it's going to be a three-part series going into next week. And uh, so how the Christian should view Israel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word before us this morning. And we just want to say together that we believe it. We believe every every jot and tittle, every the smallest stroke therein, God, we believe it. Every word of yours is truth. And this Bible before us, it stood the test of time. It has been scrutinized and attacked and weighed and criticized, and it has stood the test, Lord. It is your inerrant word. It is truth that is in front of us. And so we ask now, God, that you would exalt your truth in our hearts. That any false ideology, any false philosophy, any uh, political views that would not be in line with your word, that this morning, Lord, you deal with those. You would impart to us through your word a biblical worldview. You would align every fiber of our being and every thought process, every conclusion and every whim. You would align it with your word this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, come and teach us. Who, who is, who's able to do such a thing as stand in this place? Lord, not I. So Holy Spirit, come and instruct us. God, impart to us your heart this morning for your people, Israel. Do it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, I want to reiterate this morning, as I spoke and and said last week, that this is not a political message that I'm giving this morning. It is a Bible study that I'm sharing with you guys this morning. It may, by way of implication, it may affect some of your political views somewhere down the road, but that's not my goal. My goal is to impart to you guys a biblical worldview of current events, of history, and of events that are yet to come. My goal is that you guys would have a biblical foundation by which you can interpret current events. That's the hope, is that through these Bible studies, you'd be able to navigate an understanding of the current political happenings in the Middle East from a biblical worldview. Now understand, we are going to talk about current events a little bit today and a little bit next week, but as a teacher of Bible prophecy, that's not my primary calling. My primary calling is not really to to talk about the current events and see where they line up and, and where they don't line up. There's men that are wonderful at that, and that's their calling and a very strong gifting. The very best I know is Jack Hibbs, Pastor Jack Hibbs from Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. His church is hosting the Prophecy Conference this week. He takes current events and holds them next to the Bible, and it's incredible, the insights that the Lord gives him, and it's just phenomenal. Uh, another guy that's a favorite of mine is Randall Price. 
You got to write down that name. Anything written by Randall Price, buy it and read it. Everything that Randall Price writes, I read. It's just phenomenal stuff. Um, So any book by Randall Price, and he, again, is incredible at dealing with current events, possible prophetic scenarios, has a great handle on the intricacies of what's going on in Israel and the Middle East and the rest of the world. So I recommend those two resources to you. But my calling as a teacher of Bible prophecy is to share with the body of Christ the, the biblical underpinnings that should excite us about the times that we live in. To give us a solid biblical basis of of then how to view current events, why things might go in a certain way, what we can expect, uh, expect to have a sure understanding of the biblical past. That's my calling as a teacher of Bible prophecies, to make sure that we're real clear on the way the, the things have happened in the Word of God and will happen. And so today we're talking about how the Christian should view Israel, the challenges to her existence, which are many. The possession of her land, the challenges thereof, which are continual, and and the chances of her survival. And as I mentioned last week, there's so much in the Bible about this. Fully five-sixths of Scripture has to do with Israel and the Jews, directly or indirectly. They are, and they will always be, God's chosen people, the firstborn of God, and the apple of His eye. So last week, I I suggested to you guys an outline for our Bible study, a a four-part outline. And we got through the first two last week, but let's just review this outline. Number one was God's purposes in Israel. Number two, God's promises in Israel. Number three, God's preservation of Israel. And number four, God's prophecies concerning Israel. Now, as I mentioned, we covered the first two last week, and I had expected that we would finish up this week, but there's just too much good stuff. So we're just going to cover point three this week, and we'll finish up next week. And so today, we're talking about God's preservation and protection of Israel. And speaking of that, there was an incredible find this week. It happened just on Tuesday of this week uh, in an Irish bog. I don't know if you guys saw the article. This is absolutely phenomenal. Let me just read to you uh, a couple excerpts from this article. The, The title is Medieval Songbook Dug Out of Irish Bog. It's from Dublin, Ireland. It says, Irish archaeologist Tuesday heralded the discovery of an ancient book of psalms by a construction worker who spotted something while driving the shovel of his backhoe in a bog. The approximately 20-page book has been dated to the years 800 to 1,000. Trinity College manuscripts expert Bernard Meehan said that it was the first discovery of an Irish early medieval document in two centuries First old document they found in two centuries in Ireland. Now, uh, Pat Wallace, the director of the National Museum of Ireland, says this is really a miracle find. There are two sets of odds that make this discovery really way out. First of all, it's unlikely that something this fragile could survive buried in a bog at all. And then for it to be unearthed and spotted before it was destroyed is incalculably more amazing. Crucially, he said, The bog owner covered up the book with damp soil after finding it. Had it been left exposed overnight, he said, it could have dried out and just vanished, blown away. Now get this. The book was found open to a page describing, in Latin script, Psalm 83, in which God hears complaints of other nations attempting to wipe out the name of Israel. People, this is unbelievable. They haven't found something like this in Ireland in 200 years. 
And this cat's digging around with his backhoe. You know, that's not delicate archaeology, a backhoe. You don't usually discover thousand-year-old books with a backhoe. And with a backhoe, somehow while operating it from behind, he, he sees something, he stops, he gets off. It's an ancient manuscript of the book of Psalms, and it just happens to be open to Psalm 83. Listen, read with me Psalm 83. It's in your Bible in front of you. The same thing that was discovered there. It says in Psalm 83, O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent, and O God, do not be still. For behold, thine enemies make an uproar, and those who hate thee have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against thy people, and conspire together against thy treasured ones. They have said, Come and let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. This is unbelievable, people. Is God trying to get the attention of the world or what? That this is found there, that it's been preserved and it's open to Psalm 83, dealing with the exact situation that is going on in the Middle East right now. People wanting to wipe Israel off the map. This is unbelievable. The Lord is issuing a wake-up call, hello, to the world. We continue in Psalm 83. Uh, it's going to mention here the, the people groups and the regions that were coming against Israel at the writing of the psalm. Now, I've outlined them on a map for you, and as I mentioned them, we'll put them up that you can just kind of see what the, who the psalmist mentions here, the areas. Verse 5. For they have conspired together with one mind against thee. Do they make a covenant? The tents of Edom, that would be the area of southern Israel and Jordan. And the Ishmaelites, Arabs in general. Moab, that's the mountainous regions in Jordan. And the Hagrites, they were nomadic Arabians down near the Arabian Peninsula. Gabal, that would be south of the Dead Sea. And Ammon, which is east of the Jordan River. And Amalek, which is in the Negev, the southern desert of Israel. Philistia, talking about the Gaza Strip there. With the inhabitants of Tyra, speaking of Lebanon. Assyria has also joined with them. Assyria, ancient Mesopotamia, the capital being Nineveh, would encompass the east bank of the Tigris River, North Africa, uh, excuse me, North Iraq, North Syria, uh, Northwest Iran, and Southeast Turkey. They have become a help to the children of Lot. Now, look look at those people groups. They just surround Israel. I mean, granted, there over on the left, you've got the Mediterranean, but there's no place to go. At the time of the writing of the psalm, the enemies were those which had Israel completely surrounded, which is the very case today. This is unbelievable. It continues, and it says in verse 9, Deal with them as with Midian, as with Sisera and Jabin in the torrent of Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became as dung for the ground. Now, you, you want to read that story as homework. Judges 4 through 5, you want to read about that. It's wonderful. Verses 11. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb. What names? Those were the leaders and the Midianite warriors that came against Gideon and Israel. And all their princes like Zeba and Zelmunah, those were the Midianite kings at the time, who said, look what they said. Let us possess for ourselves the pastors of God. Verse 13. Oh my God, make them like the whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, like fire that burns the forest, and like a flame that sets the mountains on fire. So pursue them with thy tempest, and terrify them with thy storm. Fill their faces with dishonor, that they may seek thy name, O Lord. 
Let them be ashamed and dismayed forever and let them be humiliated and perish that they may know that thou alone whose name is the Lord art the most high over all the earth. This is unreal. That at this moment in history with the situation in the Middle East erupting as it is that this psalm is found, this is no coincidence, people. The Lord is wanting us to be aware And this psalm is a prayer that God would preserve Israel in the midst of her enemies. And that's our topic today, God's preservation and protection of Israel. Now, here's the outline I propose that we follow today. Number one, the reason for Israel's preservation. Number two, the biblical promise concerning Israel's preservation. Number three, Old Testament examples thereof. Number four, post-canon examples thereof. Number five, 20th century examples of God's preservation and protection of Israel. Number six, when and why Israel loses. And number seven, when and why Israel can't lose. A seven-part outline. Now, I realize you guys know me. That when I say a seven-part outline, there's terror in your hearts. Because it takes me three weeks to get through a four-part outline. But I promise you, today will go very smoothly. If you just stick with me, we'll get through them very quickly, okay? Point number one. Look, we're already on point number one. (laughs) Point number one concerning God's preservation and protection of Israel is this. The reason for Israel's preservation. The reason for Israel's preservation. Why does God preserve and protect them? Well, we laid the foundation for that last week when we looked at biblically why God chose Israel in the first place. You remember that. He chose them that through them he might be a blessing to all the nations. That through Israel he might prove himself faithful. That through Israel he might teach all the nations of himself. That through Israel he might be praised, and that through Israel salvation might be extended to all the nations. So it's very clear that God chose Israel in order to accomplish his purposes in the world. So, really, the summation of it is it's not totally about Israel, it's about God. It's about his plan, his purposes, his identity. And he made certain promises to Israel that we outlined in last week's sermon uh, that would work toward that goal of him teaching the nations of himself, proving himself faithful, blessing the nations, being praised, extending salvation. And if he makes good on those promises and all those things take place, if God were to fail in any of those promises, then those things would not be accomplished. There would not come that blessing. He would not be praised as a faithful and trustworthy God. Salvation would not be extended to all the nations if he were to fail in his promises to Israel. So you see, in reality, God's purpose in preserving and protecting Israel is to preserve and protect his own name and his own reputation and his own character. That is why we read last week in Ezekiel 36, starting verse 22. Where it says, therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name. And I will vindicate my holiness, the holiness of my great name. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among them in your sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. 
So we see very clearly in Ezekiel 36 that the reason God has and does and will preserve and protect Israel is because he is doing so to preserve and protect his great name and his reputation. Now, that does not mean that there's not an incredible love and passion in the heart of our God for Israel. There is. It's his firstborn. It's the apple of his eye. It's, it's the wife of God. Very precious, very loved. But the summation, the thrust of it, the potency of it, is that God will, by all means necessary, preserve and protect Israel because in the promises being fulfilled to them is wrapped up then the proof of his holiness and his identity and his faithfulness and his name. And this is a name above every name. In the Bible, when it talks about name, it's not the syllables, it's not the sounds, it's the character, the reputation, and the totality of being. And so God's character is wrapped up in Yisrael and the preservation thereof. His reputation is wrapped up in the protection of Yisrael and the totality of his being is connected to his faithfulness to Yisrael. As we read last week in Jeremiah 32, verse 41, God does this, the restoration and preservation of Israel with tremendous zeal. Jeremiah 32, verse 41, and I will rejoice over them to do them good and I will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and with all my soul. God does not say that about any other subject in the totality of Scripture. It is the only thing that he says he does with the fullness of his heart and soul is be faithful to Israel in restoring them to the land and fulfilling every promise he made to them. Amen? Amen. So point number two. Look, we're already on point number two. Point number one was the reason for Israel's preservation. Point number two is the biblical promise concerning Israel's preservation. Now, last week we looked at, in Genesis chapter 12, the Abrahamic covenant. That is, the covenant that God made with Abraham. And it says there, there there were four components to that covenant. And and one in particular we'll look at right now in verse 3 of Genesis 12, where God says, And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And so we see here in God's covenant with Israel that there is the promise of covenantal protection. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. It it is an aspect of that covenant, which you remember, the nature thereof is unconditional. And the fulfillment thereof is placed upon God and God alone as he was the only one that passed through the animals. You remember that from Genesis 15. But it helps us to understand what the meaning of curse in this passage is. You know, when we think of curse, we generally think someone's using foul language or, or something occultic. Not the situation here in Genesis chapter 12. The, the idea of curse is this, two parts. Number one, to stop or impose a barrier, to ban or, or to cause paralysis. To curse means to stop or impose a barrier, to ban or cause paralysis. And secondly, to treat lightly or make light of. To belittle or make little. And so a curse in the Old Testament is really the same as God's judgment in the Old Testament. It kind of can be used synonymous here. And so God says essentially, those who mess with Israel, I will judge. And and so with that in mind, Genesis 12.3 could be translated this way. The one who treats you lightly, stops you as you fulfill your calling, or makes you little, I must judge. 
And remember, he must judge them because the fulfillment of the promises and the preservation and protection of Israel is connected to his character and his identity, his faithfulness, and his name. So he must judge. So those who tried to curse Israel would find themselves cursed by God. That is God stopping them, imposing a barrier, paralyzing them, making them little. Obadiah, verses 15 and 16 come to mind. Obadiah's just got one chapter. Verses 15 and 16 says, For the day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. What dealings? These are not general dealings. This is not as Jesus saying, you know, uh, in the way that you desire to be treated, treat others. This has to do with the way that they dealt with Israel. Made clear in the next verse. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. God says explicitly in the Old Testament, and I believe it's portrayed in the New Testament as well. We'll talk about that some other time. That those who curse Israel, God will curse. Those who come against Israel or the Jews, God will come against them. That is a biblical promise concerning Israel's preservation. Now, point three. We're already on point three. Point three, Old Testament examples of God's covenantal protection. Here's just a few kind of randomly selected ones. Uh, soon after God promised blessings and cursings through Abraham, you remember that Abraham came in contact with King Abimelech of Egypt. And King Abimelech took a liking to Abraham's wife, Sarah. Unwittingly so, he, he did not know that it was Abraham's wife, but he mishandled her nonetheless. As a result, Abimelech's life was threatened and every woman in his household was cursed with infertility. You can read about it in Genesis chapter 20 immediately after God gives a covenant, after he tells him, I'm going to curse those who curse you. The first guy to come along, King Abimelech, messes with his wife, and God judges him for it. God is faithful to his covenant from the outset. Now, some years later, as we studied last week, God passed the covenant promise on to Isaac, and then Jacob and his sons. Now, one of Jacob's sons' name was Joseph. We talked about him at Wednesday night service. And he became favored and blessed by an Egyptian pharaoh. As a result, Egypt prospered in difficult times. Later on, we're told in the Old Testament, there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, nor did he esteem the Hebrews. And he made the Hebrews slaves, and he killed their children, and he imprisoned them. And after that, Egypt was laid waste and never fully recovered. It's never been the same, same empire again since they cursed Israel. God, again, fulfilling his covenantal promise to Israel. Later on in history, the Moabites hired a soothsayer named Balaam to curse the Israelites on their way to Canaan. Instead, God cursed the Moabites. They intended to curse Israel. God thwarted that, and he cursed them. You can read about it. Rahab the harlot. Conversely now, talking about God blessing those who will bless Israel. Rahab the harlot was there in Jericho, and she helped Israel. And so as a result, she was spared death when they invaded Jericho and she earned a place of eternal esteem. She made the hall of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. uh, Rahab the prostitute. She blessed Israel. God blessed her tremendously. After their exile from the promised land, the Jews in Persia were threatened by annihilation under a guy named Haman. 
We read about it in the book of Esther. By the work of God, his plan backfired, and Haman hung on the gallows that he built for Jewish necks. He intended to curse Israel. God put a stop to it. He paralyzed it, and then God brought judgment upon him. Now, throughout the scriptures, we see that Israel repeatedly backslides, right? You read through the Old Testament, that will become very clear to you, that Israel from time to time backslides from the Lord, much as we sometimes do. And when they did, God would raise up a nation or nations by which he would judge Israel. Sometimes causing them to lose territory. Sometimes causing them to be removed from the land. And God would discipline them. He said that he would do it in Deuteronomy chapter 30. We read about it last week. But inevitably, when those, when, when those nations, when, when they were used by God to discipline Israel, inevitably, they would begin to curse Israel. They would begin to despise Israel. They'd take opportunity to mock and to mistreat them. And without exception, God would turn and judge those nations mercilessly. See, with the Assyrians and the Babylonians and so on and so forth. I mean, look at the list of ancient nations that continually came against Israel as a curse. The Amalekites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Gibeonites, the Midianites, the Edomites, the Babylonians, the Philistines, and it goes on and on and on. Now, where are these people groups today? No está aquí. <laughs> They're not here. They're done with. And yet little tiny Israel is still here and they are in the land that God promised them. That can only be God's preservation of Israel and God judging those nations whom he had forewarned that he would. Again, Obadiah, for a day of the Lord draws near. For all the nations, as you have done, it will be done to you. And so those who sought to curse the children of Israel only forced God's hand against them. Some more examples from the Old Testament of God protecting Israel. Uh, you remember when Israel was being pursued by Egypt right at the outset of the Exodus. Mo went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Pharaoh said no, and Mo said, come on. And finally, you know, the plagues and everything. And, and they went out from Egypt, and then Pharaoh changed his mind. Wait a minute. Here goes all my slaves and all my workers. And so Pharaoh began to pursue Israel. And as they were fleeing from Egypt in the Exodus, they came to the point where to the front of them, they had the Red Sea. And then to the rear of them, the chariots of Pharaoh pursuing hotly. I want you to note the words of Moses that day. In Exodus 14, 13 and 14. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silence. Later on in verse 25 of the same chapter, it says, And God caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. The Lord was their defense that day. He preserved and he protected them against an impossible situation. The Red Sea to the front of them, and all the fury and armies of Pharaoh to the back of them. And the Lord delivered them. And so Mo sang a song. In Exodus 15, verses 1 through 3, 
Then Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will extol him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Later on in biblical history, just before they came into the promised land, Moses was encouraging and exhorting them. There on the eastern side of the Jordan, just before they entered in, and we read in Deuteronomy 1.30, Moses saying, The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf just as he did for you in Egypt before your very eyes. And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 22, Do not fear them, for the Lord your God is the one fighting for you. And so the Lord did as they went into the land. And later on, as we continue through biblical history, Joshua then coming after Moses. Now we move to the end of Joshua's life and his farewell address to Israel and Israel's leaders. And he says before he dies in Joshua 23, And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has been fighting for you. But you are to cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out great and strong nations from before you. And as for you, no man has stood before you to this very day. One of your men puts a thousand to flight. For the Lord your God is he who fights for you, just as he promised you. So, take diligent heed to yourselves to love the Lord your God. His dying words to the nation, testifying of God's continual protection and preservation of the nation. And then later on, when David, little David, faced Goliath, the nine-foot-plus giant, overwhelming odds once again, the little shepherd boy, 1 Samuel chapter 17, starting verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, and all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. David was banking on the covenantal promises of God. He was banking on the words that the Lord spoke to Abraham. That he would curse those who cursed Israel, and the Philistines were a curse. And David was banking on it this moment. I mean, just a little guy standing before this huge giant, this champion of war. And he says, well, you're coming at me with multiple weapons, but I'm coming in the name of the Lord of hosts. He was banking on God's past record of preserving Israel. God's past record was David's future assurance at that moment. Later on in Bible history, we get to 2 Chronicles chapter 20. King Jehoshaphat is over the southern kingdom and and everything is generally good in the land until he hears rumor that the Moabites and the Ammonites and the Menites, 
came to make war against him in the southern kingdom. And so he began to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord sent word to him through a man named Jehaziel. And that man came and said, Listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours but God's. You need not fight in this battle. Station yourself. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And it goes on and on and on and on throughout the Bible that God was faithful to preserve and to protect his people. Now, it's not just in the Bible. It continues into history as as the canon of Scripture closes, as the Bible is completed. And so now, point number four, post-canon examples. The pattern didn't change. After the, the time, of, or during the, and after the time of the New Testament, the Roman Empire was the ruling world force, and they flourished for hundreds of years. The Emperor Constantine, around the third uh, century, became a Christian, and he declared Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. Now, something else was happening in Christianity during that time that we spoke of last week. The church was embracing an allegorical form of interpreting Scripture. They were spiritualizing the literal promises made to Israel. They were spiritualizing them in order to seek to apply them to the church. Believing that God was done with Israel and that the church had replaced Israel and was now the true Israel of God. And so there came this, this team of the Christian, so to speak, Roman Empire, and the church which was embracing replacement theology. And you know what the fruit of that was? Rome began to legislate anti-Jewish laws, severe anti-Jewish laws, under the influence of current theology at the time. Well, it's after that that Rome as an empire began to crumble. And it is after that that the church sink into a spiritual abyss known as the Dark Ages. The church in Rome came together to curse Israel. Rome disintegrated as an empire, and the church slipped into the Dark Ages. Notably, it is also during this time that Islam began to rise to power. Further on in history, the 11th and 12th centuries ushered in the so-called Holy Crusades, So-called Christian soldiers dispatched by popes and kings marched from England and France to liberate Jerusalem. In truth, they want to liquidate the population of Jerusalem. And crusaders slaughtered tens of thousands of Jews and Muslims all along the way in the name of Jesus Christ at the command of leaders in Europe. A horrific thing. Well, what happened next? Well, in Europe, the bubonic plague decimated the population, just after that time. England and France re-aimed their weapons against each other in the Hundred Years' War. A few centuries later, large numbers of Jews began to migrate to Spain. Now, initially, they were welcomed in Spain and they were treated well in Spain. And, And many of them rose to prominent positions and helped transform Spain into a world power. 
The golden age of Spain ended, however, with the inquisitions against the Jewish people. And most infamously and notoriously, the Inquisition of 1492, in which Christian Spain expelled every Jew from the country. What happened next? The Spanish Empire plunged into, quote, a period of unrelenting political, military, economic, and social decline, never to reclaim its previous global influence. I mean, history is just crystal clear. God said, I will curse those who curse Israel. And throughout biblical history, and then beyond the closing of Scripture, we see God doing that very thing. I mean, you can read history for yourself. It's just clear. Point number five, 20th century examples. The century that just came to a close that we are most familiar with, 20th century examples, to set the context to it back up about 500 years when Jews began to settle significantly in Great Britain. There in Great Britain, they enjoyed favor and eventually support from a small Christian minority. These were the forerunners of Christian Zionism. And what happened was they began to take the Bible literally again. Remember, for for centuries, the church had been in an abyss of allegorical interpretation, seeking to spiritualize the promises that God made to Israel and apply them to the church. But there began to form this nucleus, this body in Great Britain that just believed the Bible. They just read it. They said, that makes sense. I believe it. So they began to interpret it literally. And so then they begin to respond to it literally, seeing the prophetic promises of God, seeing the promises to Israel and the restoration thereof. They sought to become a blessing to the Jews who were in Great Britain. And by the late 1800s, British believers were playing a key role in imparting vision and practical help to European Jews in the return and rebuilding of their ancestral homeland. And those Christians, God bless them at that time, laid the theological groundwork for what is sometimes called Christian Zionism. That is, Christians that support the return of Jews to the promised land of Israel. And as long as the Jews were treated well in Great Britain under that theological tone and tenor there, it was good times for Great Britain. They became the world empire. We read in history that that some would say the sun never sets on the British Empire. It was so vast in its scope. But a turning point came for Great Britain after World War I when the international community delegated to Britain a sizable honor and responsibility. They were to supervise the official reestablishment of a sovereign Jewish state in the Middle East. And there was a large partition of land that was set aside to be the Jewish homeland, extending well beyond the Jordan, into Jordan, and all the way over into the region of Iran, a large area. And it was intended by the international community and it was intended initially by Great Britain to be given to the Jews as Israel. But what happened was Great Britain chose to give 80% of it to the Arabs instead. Breaking their word and their promise to Israel, they chose to give 80% of that land to the Arabs and thus some of those Arab nations were birthed at that time. And beyond that then now, during the Holocaust... Great Britain blockaded Jews from coming into that 20% sliver of land. They were seeking refuge from the Holocaust in Europe. Get a film from the period. You will see pictures that will make you weep. Ships loaded 
over, full of Jews. I mean, coming out of every crevice and corner, loaded over and being turned away in Haifa by British and cahoots with the Arabs saying, you can't come here. But they're trying to slaughter us in Europe. You can't come here. And ships of Jews being turned away from their homeland under British rule. The reason that Great Britain gave the 80% of land to the Arabs and barred the Jews for so long from entering into the 20% was, of course, oil. The Arabs feared that the Jews would affect their economic well-being and dealings with Great Britain, and Great Britain acquiesced to their fears. Well, Great Britain is not an empire anymore, is it? They don't even have good food. (laughs) Have you ever eaten in Great Britain? They are cursed. (laughs) I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And what could be said about Germany? What could be said? After the Nazi-generated Jewish genocide, Germany was left in shambles, a nation divided and humiliated. What could be said about the Soviet Union, where hundreds and thousands of Jews have been murdered throughout the centuries? Demand was made from inside the Soviet Empire and outside, let my people go. They would not allow the Jews to leave. There was tremendous persecution and murder of Jews in the USSR. Well, I'll tell you what, it is not an empire anymore. And when the USSR fell, when the Soviet Union disintegrated, the Jews left almost a million of them to Israel. It's wonderful. They were a curse to the Jewish people. God put a roadblock in their way, paralyzed them, stopped them from being the USSR, stopped them from being a world force, broke down that communist block, opened up the borders, and the Jews came flooding home just as prophesied. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. History records this to be the case for the Romans, the French, the Spanish, the British, the Germans, the Soviets, and someday, apart from repentance, Iran and the Arab nations. That will be their fate. I'm not necessarily speaking about America today, though we are in a precarious situation. We have historically been in the realm of being blessed by God because we've been a blessing to Israel. That is not so much the case anymore. We're sort of fair-weather friends to Israel now, America is. We're in a precarious situation. We know the way that it will go, Zechariah tells us very clearly that in the last days, all the nations will be gathered against Jerusalem. But that's the way that the Romans, the French, the Spanish, the British, the German, the Soviets, and someday apart from repentance, America, Iran, and the Arab nations will go. Look at, in in modern history, just the the amazing record of of the war between, the wars between Israel and the Arab nations. Three of them, specifically. 1948, May 14th, 
Israel becomes a nation again, a glorious day. Immediately on that day, the war of independence pursues. On the day that they declare statehood, they are invaded by Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq. All on the same day, these five countries invade little Israel. In fact, we are told that at 1600 in Tel Aviv, David Ben-Gurion read the first proclamation of independence of the state of Israel to the first session of the provisional government. And while he was speaking, Tel Aviv was attacked from the air by the Egyptian Air Force. I mean, they've only been a nation for minutes, moments. And five other nations come against them who have been established and who have established armies. They were outnumbered in that battle 100 to 1. I mean, fathom that. You've never seen a battle like that. You have never seen with your eyes a battle where someone is outnumbered 100 to 1 by their enemy. David Ben-Gurion would say later on, I felt like a mourner at a wedding. I was at this wonderful event, Israel being proclaimed a state again, and at the same time, his heart was breaking as these five Arab nations invaded. And the invading army's intentions were very clear. I'll quote to you from Azam Pasha, who was the Secretary General of the Arab League at the time. He said, this war will be a war of extermination and a momentous massacre. It's only been a nation for hours. Five surrounding nations, just like we read in Psalm 83, come against them. Well, the outcome Amazingly, miraculously, within a few months, the Arab armies were not only stopped and expelled, but the Israeli defense forces invaded Egyptian, Jordanian, and Syrian territory. I mean, they not only stopped five other countries from coming in, they stopped them, they pushed them out of Israel, beyond their own borders, and then Israel started to invade Egyptian and Jordanian and Syrian territory. So much so that the Arab countries said, stop beating us up. And they called for a ceasefire. And when Israel granted them the ceasefire, Israel was larger now in territory than a few months ago when it was born. Outnumbered 100 to 1? Any common spectator can look at that and see that is miraculous. No military is capable of that. From a brand new country? How about the Six-Day War of 1967? Lasted from June 5th to June 10th. Just six days. Now, Israel made a preemptive strike in this one. They, They were forced to do so. Here's why. By the end of May, Egypt and Syria and Jordan, by the end of May... Those countries had amassed a combined force of 465,000 troops, 2,880 tanks, and 810 fighter aircraft at the edge of Israel's borders. Not only that, but they had blockaded their only southern port of Elat, cutting them off from the east. Nowhere to go west but the Mediterranean. They were completely surrounded with the forces of three nations and an expeditionary force from Iraq on their borders. And so they were forced to make a preemptive strike. Israel struck first. The odds were against, again, so overwhelming that General Moshe Dayan, one of the greatest generals in Israeli military history, stood before his men that day and he read to them 
the story of David and Goliath. He read it to his troops. He read to them the same thing that we just read. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. He read those words to his troops. And at that moment, Moshe Dayan in 1967, June, was banking on God's promise that he made to Abraham thousands of years before. Just as David, when he stood before Goliath, banked on the promises of God. Moshe Dayan and all of Israel that day banked on God's covenantal promise of protection and preservation of that nation. And, and the outcome is is astounding, it's unbelievable, it's unfathomable, that in six days, just six days, Israel defeated the armies of Egypt, Syria, Jordan, and the little bonus force from Iraq in six days. And not only that, but they tripled their territory. In the 1967 war, then they tripled their territory. They took the Sinai Peninsula, they took the Golan Heights, and they captured East Jerusalem. For the first time, Jews, for the first time in thousands of years, Jews entered onto the Temple Mount. And I've got a picture in my office at home of Yitzhak Rabin and, and Moshe Dayan walking onto the Temple Mount to go pray at the Western Wall. I've got pictures at home of Jews weeping at the Western Wall, having tasted and felt and saw and experienced the truth of God's promise to Abraham. It's militarily impossible what was achieved. It was the Lord. It was the Lord. The Yom Kippur War of 1973. Now, in 1973, they were invaded by Syria and Egypt. Syria and Egypt had behind them at that time the support and assistance of Iraq, Libya, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, and five other countries. And together they came up with really a brilliant plan. We'll attack Israel on the Day of Atonement. Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, the day of covering. When every Jew in Israel was in a synagogue, they weren't manning the military bases. They were in the synagogues that day. They were all called to services. They were praying. They were fasting. They were weeping before the Lord. And so those Arab nations said, let's catch them unaware. It was brilliant, really. And Egypt invaded from the south. Syria from the north. The outcome of that one, Israel again defeated the Arab armies. And this time, they pushed Egypt all the way back across the Sinai Peninsula and across the Suez Canal. They cut off the third army of Egypt and Israel began to march toward Cairo. They were within a few miles walking distance from Cairo and Egypt called up the UN and said, Israel's beating us up, stop them. After attacking, stop them. And so there was a UN-enforced ceasefire. Once again, Israel gained in the conflict. It's miraculous. It's unfathomable. 
It's unbelief. It can only be described by the secular mind even. It can only be described as miraculous intervention. God said, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And God keeps his word. Just as Moses told the children of Israel, do not fear them for the Lord your God is the one who is fighting for you. Even the common observer can see that these things can only be described as the Lord's intervention. Now, for the Bible-believing Christian, he or she knows that the Lord is fighting on behalf of Israel and doing so for his namesake. Now, in order for us to think about the current conflict, we've got to answer this question. This is point six. Oh, we are doing so good. This is point six. When and why Israel loses? There have been times where Israel has lost battles. In the Bible, you read about it. And generally, it had to do with either their disobedience or their arrogance. Their disobedience or their arrogance. And many, many Jews alive today who fought in the war of Yom Kippur will tell you that, man, we almost got busted because of our arrogance. We believed our own press. They thought themselves invincible. The Arab nations, certainly at that time, man, these guys might be invincible. They believed their own press. And I tell you what, Yom Kippur, they almost lost it. There have been times where Israel has lost battles. Generally, it had to do with either their disobedience or their arrogance. Either way, it was God's discipline upon them. Now, the land covenant, which is a subset of the Abrahamic covenant, is outlined in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and we looked at it last week, where God simply says, if you obey me, you'll be in the land and everything will be cool. You disobey me and I will remove you from the land as a chastening. Yet I will restore you to the land. And so we've seen that there's times God has had to remove Israel from the land and yet restore them to the land. We're currently seeing that happening. And there has also been times where Israel has lost little battles and we've seen an expansion and retraction-like effect happen on the land. The amount of land that Israel has possessed, and they've never possessed the whole thing. They've never taken possession of the full promise the amount that they had or did not have was always directly proportionate to their obedience to God. This is something that we may witness in this current conflict and possibly others to come. We may witness an expansion or a retraction of the land. We've already seen it happen in, in modern history with, with Gaza and the Golan and the West Bank and so on and so forth. We've seen this expansion retraction principle take place, but we may see some of that in this battle because what Israel was called to be faithful to was the Mosaic Covenant. Now their faithfulness to the Mosaic Covenant or lack thereof does not negate the Abrahamic Covenant because that is an unconditional covenant whose provisions are placed squarely upon the shoulders of God and God alone. But when Israel is disobedient to the Mosaic Covenant, then we see that they are disciplined and there's often a retraction of the land. Generally speaking, Israel is not obedient to God right now. Most Jews in the world are secular at this time. Not a lot of obedience to the Lord. So it's possible that we might see a retraction of the land. It's possible. But two things are absolutely for sure. Number one, 
we know from Scripture that Israel will, Israel will be continually challenged for the land until Messiah comes again. We know that. So it should not surprise you. They will be continually challenged for the land and every square inch thereof until Messiah comes again. The other thing that we know for sure absolutely is this. Israel cannot be removed from the land completely ever again. We know that for sure. And that's the last point. When and why Israel cannot lose. Let me say this and listen to me very carefully. Israel cannot lose this war. I believe it to be theologically impossible. Now let me define for you what I mean by lose. I'm defining a loss as Israel ceasing to be a nation. The reason why I define that as a loss is because that is the stated goal of the Arabic nations, of the Persian nation, of the Palestinian people, and of the Islamic religion. That is the stated goal, the annihilation of the Jews and the extermination of their presence from the land. That is the stated goal of each one of those parties. And so a loss for Israel would be according to their goal then, that Israel would cease to be a nation. That will not happen. Israel will not lose this war for the basic reasons which follow. These following basic and clear reasons. Israel must be a nation in the land for certain end time prophecies not yet fulfilled to take place. They must. Jesus spoke in Matthew 24, uh, 15 through 21, of the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist coming. The Antichrist will come to the nation of Israel. He will come to the Temple Mount. He will declare himself to be God, as it says in Thessalonians. Uh, By way of logic, if there's a temple, then Israel is a nation and they are in the land. For that unfulfilled prophecy to take place, Israel has to be a nation in the land. Therefore, in this war or any other one in their near future, they cannot cease to be a nation. Daniel 9, 24 through 27 outlines the same thing. Yet to be fulfilled about the Antichrist. They must be a nation for those things. The Magog invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39. The countries from the north leading an invasion of Israel with with the Muslim countries uh, joining with them. Yet to be fulfilled. For them to attack Israel, Israel must be a nation. They will not cease to be a nation. They will not lose this war. Zechariah chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, says that in the last days, all the nations of the earth will be gathered against against Jerusalem, against Jerusalem. For them to be gathered against Jerusalem, it must be the capital of Israel. Israel must be a nation. The Jews must be in the land. Now, there are two regatherings in the last day, one in unbelief and one in belief. And we'll talk about those next week. The one that we're seeing right now is the fulfillment of the regathering in unbelief. But Israel cannot, by all theological realities, lose this war and cease to be a nation. And it says so explicitly in Amos chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. And they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will also plant vineyards and drink their wine and will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will also plant them on their land and they will not again be rooted out from their land which I have given them, says the Lord. What we can expect to see in the months to come Weeks, maybe days, and how things may and must develop prophetically is the subject of next week's sermon. 
God's prophecies concerning Israel. But I hope from last week and this week that, that you've now got a basis. You're now beginning to develop a biblical worldview by which you can interpret current events. You are not to interpret the Bible by current events. You're to interpret current events by the Bible, by the Word of God. And I hope that now you have a basis by which you can view history, current realities, and things that are yet to be. I hope that you now have the tools to begin to make sense of these things, to pray over these things. We will be praying for Israel Tuesday morning at 6 a.m. I expect to see every one of you there. Why would we not come together to pray for Israel at this moment in history? I hope you have the tools to make sense of such things, pray over, and then respond to current world events. And and just let me just say in my last breath how you respond. You respond by being busy about the Father's business, occupying the land, being consumed with the things of the kingdom. This is not the moment in history to play games. This is not the moment in history to try to figure out who you are. This is a moment in history to know who Jesus Christ is and what his plan is and Israel's place among the nations. Thank you, Lord, for your wonderful word, your glorious promises and your amazing faithfulness. And Holy Spirit, make application for us right now that if you can preserve and protect little Israel through so much, you can deal with the ins and outs of our lives today. You can deal with the things that scare us, the enemies around us, the giants in the land, so to speak. God, if you've been faithful to Israel for so long, you're just as faithful to your bride. Thank you, Lord, that you're going to be faithful to us as well. And so help us now as we have seen and heard the truth of your character and your goodness and your power and your faithfulness. Help us now to live in light of your purposes and your plan. Lord, if there be anything that any one of us would be holding back from you, help us to surrender today, to surrender all to you, to be wholeheartedly committed to your kingdom in these last days, Lord. Thank you that you'll be faithful to us too. We love you, Lord.